Does that bring back some memories? That was just Ruth and our garage band, just, you know, singing spontaneously. <laughs> oh, I love this song, when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, uh, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. The late Keith Green in the early 80s, he put it this way in what I would call kind of a modern version of this old hymn but with a little more bite. He said to obey is better than sacrifice. I don't need your money. I want your life. And I hear you say that I'm, I'm coming back soon, but you act like I'll, I'll never return. Well, you speak of grace and my love so sweet, how you thrive on milk, but reject my meat. And I can't help weeping of how it will be if you keep on ignoring my words. Well, you pray to prosper and succeed, but your flesh is something I, I, just, I just can't feed. Here's a definition a very technical definition for the word obey from the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. It means to follow the commands or guidance of. It means to conform or uh, comply with. It means to uh, obey in order. And what I left out of there was, because I felt a little awkward, every dictionary that I looked at, it had in there, this was, this was applied to both children and dogs. And I thought, I don't know what got me. But as I, as I read every one of those definitions, I thought to myself, this just upsets me a little bit. Like, maybe it's good for children and dogs, but it's not good for me. Right? I think you get the point. We're going to talk about obedience today. And as I just said, hearing, hearing the word makes us tense up a little bit. So the question is, why... Why is obedience so, so difficult for us? If we're honest with ourselves, we, we, often, we often find ourselves trying to bargain with God about what we should obey and, and, and not obey. How can we sort of, you know, partially, partially obey? So this morning, we're going to ask ourselves this question. Just be thinking about this, right, as, as we kind of walk through the message this morning. Will, will I fully obey? When it comes to God and it comes to his precepts and it comes to his, his word, will I, will I fully obey? And this, this applies to me, right? I mean that love my enemies and forgive those who've sinned against me and spoken bad about me? I mean, come on, Really? I mean, don't I get a pass on that one, God? And what about this? Do not be anxious about anything. I mean, that's, that's a rite of passage in, in America. Like, we're, we're anxious about everything. We're nervous about, we're neurotically nervous about everything. I, I'm allowed to be, right? I'm allowed to have a little anxiety, maybe a lot of anxiety. I mean, who actually lives that way? 
obedience is great so long as it, it fits in, into my life. I like to think of obedience as, as a, a buffet. Some things, some things um, I choose to obey. Others, like that super funky looking macaroni and cheese, right? I choose, you know, not, not to obey. Maybe not so much. Welcome back to our, our series in First and Second Samuel, the Old Testament books of First and Second Samuel. Unfortunately, this morning, King Saul, Israel's newly anointed king, is, is going to show us what not to do when it comes to obeying God. Two weeks ago, uh, Jim kind of left us with a feel-good, sort of. He left us with Samuel's farewell speech, which was basically a speech that said, I have served you, this is Samuel, the last judge, the last priest. I have served you with integrity. Now this earthly king thing that you, you want is not my idea. It's not a good idea. But if you and this king follow the Lord and serve him with all your hearts and stay away from, from idols, God will bless you. If you don't, he won't. Let's start with an overview of 1 Samuel chapters 13 and 14. We're kind of, going to kind of build this morning. Just a brief overview of those two chapters, and we're going to dive deeper into chapter 15. In chapter 13, the Philistines have almost kind of a test to Samuel's new kingship. They've gathered a large army, and they're ready for some battle. And so Saul, pardon me, Saul's kingship, Saul gets his, his, his army together, but they, they flee. They're afraid. And the Philistines begin to, to press forward and, and everyone kind of runs. And so King Saul gets nervous and he summons Samuel to the battlefield to make an, an offering to God. And, and Samuel didn't arrive when he should. And so Saul does a no-no. He thinks to himself, well, you know, the priest isn't here. Our, our judge isn't here. Our, our, our holy man isn't here. I better do the sacrifice. And back in the day, um, kings, generals, uh, soldiers, they didn't sacrifice. It's not what they did. But he decides to do it, do it anyway, and it begins his disobedience slide. And so Samuel tells him, God's going to take away your kingdom. And, and Saul's not really listening. And then 1 Samuel chapter 14, King Saul is worried about losing the battle. And, and he thinks God is silent because maybe there's sin in the camp. So he makes a rash vow that none of his troops can eat food until God gives them the victory. The problem with that is that the troops are really hungry. They've been, they've been marching and climbing and fighting. And, and his right-hand man, his son, Jonathan, well, he didn't hear about this vow. And so the troops are marching through a forest, and they're exhausted. And some honeycomb has fallen on the ground, and, and Jonathan's like, man, that looks good. And everyone else is sidestepping the honeycomb, but Jonathan picks it up, and he begins, he begins to eat it. And so Saul with his rash vow, vows to kill his own son. He's, he's not too bright, and, and he's not a very good dad. But the Israelites, thankfully, they, they talk him out of it. And this brings us to 1 Samuel chapter 15. So do me a favor if you haven't already. Open your Bibles it's in, in the Old Testament, as I said earlier, or your Bible apps to 1 Samuel chapter 15. And let's read through the text together. Uh, it's a long text, but I want to get most of the story here, so it's really important that we, we walk through this. Samuel, verse 1, said to Saul, 
I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. By the way, if, you, if, if a sentence ever gets started with that, we need to listen up, right? This is what God says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. That was Exodus chapter 17 and verse 9. Verse 3, now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and and donkeys. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. Verse 7, then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took... um, Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. And uh, all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. And these, they were unwilling. You might want to underline that. They were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they, they totally destroyed. They took the, the, most of the good stuff, right? And they, they kind of got rid of the bad stuff. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry. Was he angry with Saul? Was he angry with God? Could have been both. We don't know. Um, But he cries out to the Lord all night. He goes to prayer. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told, now it goes from bad to worse, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. And when Samuel reached him, Saul said, hey, the Lord bless you. I have, I've carried out the Lord's instructions. Sort of. Sort of. But, but Samuel said, what, what then is this bleeding, don't you love this? Bleeding of, of the sheep in my ears. I, I mean, didn't we tell you to destroy everything? Well, yeah, sort of. And the lowing, like the lowing uh, of, of the cows, right? I, I hear the sheep, I hear the cows. And then Saul begins to go into kind of a Genesis chapter 3, like sin of the garden. Like, you remember that? Remember when Adam and Eve sinned and who, what did they do? They began to blame everybody else. Well, man, it was the woman, it was the man, it was the snake, it was, I mean, Right? The blame game. Saul answered, well, the soldiers, they, what do you do? They brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But, but we, hey, we totally destroyed the rest, sort of, kind of. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. I'm just tired of this. Shucking and jiving. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Saul says, uh, tell me. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, that was a good thing. Like when you recognize how great you are, that's a bad thing. Did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over all of Israel, and then he sent you on a mission. Like the God of the universe sent you on a mission. He said this, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you've wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder, the good stuff, and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Oh, 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 but but I did obey the Lord. Um, I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back 
Oh, wait, an Amalekite. I mean, it's crazy, right? I destroyed them all. But this was one king. We'll find it later. It was more than that. Sort of destroyed them. The soldiers, there they are again, those soldiers. They took the sheep and the cattle from the plunder and the best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Like Samuel is trying to wear him down and Saul is trying to push back. But Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed is better than the fat of rams. Like, you know what's going on here. I, just, I want to give us a contemporary illustration. He's like, do this and do it the way I told you. And King Saul's like, well, here's what I'll do. I won't quite do it the way you told me to do it. I'll partly do it. I'll get the good stuff. We'll keep some of the good stuff, and we'll give God some of the good stuff. Here's the parallel. It would be like you stealing from your employer and tithing a portion of it to the church and keeping some. Right? I'll just embezzle a little bit of money from Walmart, and I'll keep some for me, but I'll give a bunch of it to God. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For this is, whoa, how did it get here? For um, rebellion is like the sin of divination. That's just a big fancy word for witchcraft. And arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Samuel finally gets it. It sinks in. I've sinned. I violated the Lord's command in your instructions. I was afraid of the men. It's the men again. And so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. This was not the first time he's rejected the word of the Lord, but it's going to be the last, right? As far as the consequences. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord. As Samuel, verse 27, turned to leave, Saul caught hold of uh, the hem of his robe. He reaches out and he grabs it and it tears. And Samuel takes this moment to give an object lesson. The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. Two principles that I want to pull from our, our text this morning. And the first principle is by no means an easy principle but it goes like this, God's commands are not always easy to understand. This is a basic principle for followers of God. No matter how hard it may seem when God tells us to do something, we need to obey. And make no mistake, obeying God sometimes requires doing some hard stuff. For example, Abram, leave your home. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> this is my home, and I, where do I go? When you get there, I'll tell you. <laughs> um, Abraham, name change. Covenant has been instituted. I'm going to bless your people. Well, how are you going to bless my people? Through a son. Oh, by the way, sacrifice your son on Mount Moriah. Hosea, yes, God, I'm your prophet. Um, I want you to marry someone. Oh, I'd love to marry someone. Who do I need to marry? A prostitute as an object lesson to the disobedient children of Israel. Oh, come on. Joseph, marry a pregnant woman. 
Jesus, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, died for the sins of the world, past, present, future. Disciples, yeah, go into all the world and preach the gospel. I'm putting it on your shoulders. I'm building my church on you. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God often asks us to do hard things. But in our passage this morning, this is really, really difficult for us to wrap our minds around. So I want to dig a little deeper. I want to unpack. I want to unpack this a little more. So let's read verse 3 again. Now, go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and and donkeys. And we need to just stop here for a second and um, address this question. I want to put it up on the screen for you to see. Why would God have the Israelites? I mean, he's, like, he's a God of love. Why would he have the Israelites ex- exterminate an entire group of people, in- including uh, women and children and the donkeys, right? And all the animals. What's going on here? There's no way around this. This is a difficult issue. And I don't fully understand why God would command this. But sometimes we just have to recognize that we are, in our finiteness, incapable of fully understanding a sovereign, infinite, and eternal God. I don't think we're going to chicken out on this, right? I know some of you are thinking already, well, that's great. You're just going to tell me that this is too big for me to understand and we're going to, we're going to gloss over it. We always gloss over the not at New Heights. We try and talk about the hard stuff. Our God is bigger than the hard stuff. So, I want to give us some reasons that God may have given this order. And let me just say up front, I, th- I think it's a combination of all three. So I'm going to go real slow and be real thorough on this. Number one, why did God allow this? Why did he order this? Number one, some scholars say that God wanted the Amalekites destroyed because they would corrupt the children of Israel with their wicked practices. Every historian I looked at, every single one, pointed out that the Amalekites practiced rampant sexual immorality, bestiality, incest. You ready for this? Child sacrifice, both of which were associated with temple prostitution and the worship rituals offered to their particular gods. Number two, it was Divine punishment, remember I had mentioned Exodus chapter 17, from 400 years ago when they attacked the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. Later Moses will write in Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 17, remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt, when you were weary and worn out, and they met you on your journey. By the way, just so you know, the Amalekites are the... They literally are the, the offspring of, of Esau. So this is Esau's clan. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey. And here's what they did. They cut off, they killed all who were lagging behind. Uh, women, children, the infirmed, right? The, the elderly. And on top of all that, they had no fear of God. But even still. God graciously gave them 400 years, four centuries to repent, and and they didn't. Number three, unlike us, God knows the future. God knew what the results would be if Israel did not completely eradicate the Amalekites. 
If Israel did not carry out God's orders, the Amalekites would come back and try to destroy the Israelites in the future. <clears throat> and this almost came true. Remember earlier, King Saul said, I, I killed them all except the king. Not true. 20 years from that point, a group, a band of marauding Amalekites are going to capture David's family and the families of, of his men. Several hundred years after that, we're going to see in the book of Esther. You remember Esther? We're going to see a descendant of King Agag, a guy by the name of Haman. And he's going to try to have the entire Jewish people wiped out, exterminated. So Saul's partial obedience almost resulted in Israel's destruction. And God knew this would occur, so he ordered the extermination of the Amalekites ahead of time. But even after saying all of that, I'm not sure why God would give this order. I don't know. But as we look at difficult issues such as this one, we need to remember, as Paul says in Romans, and as the prophet Isaiah says, that God's ways are higher than our ways. And even beyond that, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And as it says in the book of Genesis, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? He always does right. Second principle from our text, and this is where I want to spend most of our time. It doesn't get a whole lot easier, but it's easier than the first principle, okay? Second principle is this. Partial obedience is disobedience. 1 Samuel chapter 15. Verse 22, but Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of, of rams. Two negative results uh, of partial obedience. Number one, partial obedience causes us to praise the wrong things. When, when Saul had defeated the Amalekites, the first thing he did was he built this beautiful monument to, to Jehovah. Oh, not quite. Not quite. Verse 12, again. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and he went to meet Saul. But he was told Saul had gone to Carmel and there he had set up a monument in his, his own honor. Evidently, uh, Saul was more, more interested in getting a name for himself than in making a name for, for God through careful obedience to his word. He had misplaced praise from, from God to himself. Get this, a, a pattern of, of partial obedience will do that. Eventually we think, if, if I'm not obeying God, like, why should I worship him? Almost 30 years of pastoral ministry, I see this over and over again. It's like, it, it starts kind of here, I want to obey you, God. It kind of goes, maybe it starts here, I want to obey you, God. Sort of obey you, God. Partially obey you, God. Not really obey you, God. And eventually it's like, who's God? Like, why would I, why would I, why do I, wor why would I worship a God that I don't even listen to? Like, what's the point? And the sin becomes worse as we read in verse 17. Samuel said, although you were, you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribe of, tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over, over Israel. Do you remember back in 1 Samuel chapter 9? It all started out so good. The people are begging for a king. Samuel's like, I don't want to give you a king. God finally says, give him a king. Here's the king. 
It's this, this guy from the smallest tribe, the smallest clan of the smallest tribe. He's really tall. He's good looking, but he's really shy and meek and humble. And that's the kind of guy you want as a king. He diverts all the glory, all the honor, all the praise to Jehovah God. What happened? Well, I mean, how did we get here? This is Samuel's point in verse 17. Saul, why are you driven by a lust for human glory when God has made you the head of the tribes of Israel and anointed you as as the king of his people? Now you're building a, a monument to yourself? You might want to write this down. The secret to Christianity is hiddenness. We are hidden. We're a hidden people. I, the whole selfie thing just freaks me out. I mean, I get it. I know it's deeper than that, Lee. But I mean, we're, we're stealthy. Like, when we pray, if we're ever worried about us getting the credit, we go to our prayer closet and we just pray quietly. Like, when we give, we don't even let our left hand know what our right hand is giving. Remember the Pharisees? They would hire minstrels. Who, who would literally follow them around, and as the Pharisees would give, they would play. Look at me, I'm giving to God. Here you go. We're a people of hiddenness. That's why I'm always amazed at people. I want to go to a church where I'm known. No, I want to go to a church where Jesus is known. Right? I don't care if it's 10,000 or 10. I don't care if it's on, on, on the, the plateau or a, a valley in Yushu or, or, or a town in Fayetteville. I don't, I wanna, I'm, a, I'm a child of hiddenness. My greatness is in King Jesus. It's not in me. But Saul was not content with the glory of God and the honor of being his chosen king. He wanted his own glory and his own praise. And the submissive, and it's a submissive path, you all. The submissive path of obedience does not offer that kind of praise and glory. And so he did things his own way. It reminds me of someone else. It reminds me of Lucifer. You know, Lucifer was this beautifully created angel who would forever get to enjoy the presence of God. And he's like, not enough. I want to be like the Most High. I want to be like God. I want some of your glory, God. I want all your glory, God. Partial obedience will eventually cause us to praise the wrong things. Second negative result. Partial obedience causes us to fear the wrong things. Notice verse 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, I I have sinned. I I violated the Lord's command and your instruments. Underline this next sentence. I was afraid of of the men, and so so I gave gave in to them. Why did Saul obey the people instead of God? Because he feared the the people instead of of God. Like he stepped back and he said, (laughs) like my surroundings... The cultural environment I'm in at the moment is, well, you know, they want the good stuff. I'm afraid of them. I'm afraid of what they might think, of what they might do, of what they might say. Like, I'm more concerned about the culture and an attaboy from the culture than I am 
about God and what God thinks. Write this down. I put this up on the screen for you. He feared the displeasure of the people more than the displeasure of God. I mean, God's just kind of a throw-in, right? He's kind of a punching bag. God's just going, it's always going to be good with God. Now the people, that's another, but God, that doesn't matter. Samuel had said, not once, but twice to Saul and, and, and the people in 1 Samuel chapter 12. Jim went over this. He said, fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Fear the Lord. Fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. But now the leader himself has feared man and turned away from, from following God. And often, this is a cultural thing, right? We think of the word fear. When we think of that word, we think bad word, bad emotion. But that's just not biblical. Biblically speaking, there is a right kind of fear. The prophet Isaiah, in addressing the people who had bad motives, right, and bad thoughts and a bad way of living, the, the prophets, what prophets do, they get up in real difficult times against real difficult people. And he puts it this way, verse 11, this is what the Lord says to me with his strong hand upon me, Warning me not to follow the way of this people. Verse 12, do not call conspiracy everything this people calls, uh, this people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. Verse 13, this is key. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. You say, whoa, 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 I, that, I, really? He's the one you are to dread. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7, top 10 favorite verse for me. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Like, I, I want to be knowledgeable. I confess, I want, I, want to, I want some wisdom. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. When we fear God, you ready for this? We're no longer the smartest person in the room, but God is. And so we run everything through God's grid. And when we do this, we become teachable and wise. Okay, let's go back to the beginning of our talk. The hymn writer says, trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, well, well Lee, hold on. I guess if I have to, I will. <laughs> but does obeying God's commands really make me happy? Before we finish this morning, three positive reasons why we should fully, I want to end on an upbeat note, why we should fully obey God. Number one, we should obey God fully because his commandments, they're not too difficult. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 11. Now what I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. God is saying you can do this. I'm with you. Here's the New Testament version. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. In fact, this is love for God. Like if you're like, how do I know somebody really loves God? Like do they pray great? Do they look good? Do they have a degree, a title? 
I mean, do they, they sound right? Here's how we know if someone truly loves God. Uh, on a regular basis, not that we don't struggle and, and sometimes fail, on a regular basis, this is what they do. They keep his commands. Even when it hurts. Even when it's hard. Right? This is love for God. To keep his commands. And get this. His commands are not burdensome. He's on our side. Number two, we should obey God fully uh, because his commands for us are only for our, our good. Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 12. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? We are the modern day Israel. We are the church, right? What does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God and, and to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today. Get this. They're for your own good. Like I didn't just make these up to make you, make you sad or make you feel bad or to constrain you. I, I gave them to bless you. And that leads to the third thing. We should obey God fully because when we do, he blesses us. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 1. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on the earth. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. And then he gives a very long list of tangible ways in which he blesses his obedient children. Here's some homework for you this afternoon. Go home and read Deuteronomy chapter 28, Old Testament. Go home and read it. The first part, not the first half, someone corrected me after the first service. The first part basically says this, if you obey, I'll bless, and this is what the blessing looks like, and it's like 14 verses of blessing, you're like, woohoo! Now this person, a little bit more negative than myself, they pointed out that after those first, te- first 14 verses, the next 55 verses are curses if you disobey. I'm like, dude, do we have to go there? You've heard Jim say this a thousand times. Just do right. It's never wrong to do right. And you've, you've got a hundred choices every week just to do right. And then maybe a thousand choices to do wrong. Do right. Now, I, please, don't do right in your own flesh. Don't do right like King Saul tried to do and eventually couldn't do. I mean, as a child of God, we have incredible resources at our disposal. Like when I became a follower of Jesus at the age of 17, 20 years ago. Um, no, many more years than that. He, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13 that I literally was baptized with his Holy Spirit. That means the Holy Spirit came to live inside of me. So I can do right because the Holy Spirit lives inside of me. I can say no to the wicked deeds of the flesh and yes to living by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I get to wake up each morning, confess sinful thoughts, sinful actions, whatever it might be, and then ask the Holy Spirit to live and empower me in such a way that I can do right. That I can obey his commands. They're good. They're not burdensome. They're a blessing. Let me conclude as the worship team comes back up, let me conclude this morning with one thought about obedience and then a tangible visual expression of obedience. Here's my thought. I'm gonna put it up on the screen for you. Aren't we glad that Jesus obeyed the will of the Father fully and not partially? 
Like, I find it interesting. I do this. I'm like, oh, God, oh, God, I'm only obeying partially, but that's okay, right? Just forgive me. Oh. And God's like, yeah. aren't you glad that Jesus didn't obey partially? Philippians chapter 2, theologians call this the kenosis passage. Kenosis just means to empty oneself. And this is where Jesus, our rightful king, not King Saul, not even King David, not a president, not a monarch, but the real one and only true king of the entire world emptied himself of his kingship. Like Saul. Saul gets a little taste of glory. What does he do? God who? And he sets a monument up to himself. Jesus steps down from heaven as the right and true king. And he says, take it. Take it. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. Jesus, who, being in very nature God, the one true king, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. He emptied himself. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming, there it is, obedient. Not my will, Father, but your, yours be done. He became obedient to death, even death, on a cross. Now, here's my, my one example of obedience that's visual, visual and tangible this morning, and that's baptism. Hey, baptism is a big deal. <laughs> Why? Because God said it. I, somehow, I don't know what's happened in our culture. Well, it's kind of optional. Eh, it doesn't really. No, it's, it's a really big deal. It's not just an inward an outward sign of, a, of, a, of an inward change, like the Spirit of God coming to live inside of us. That is a, it's, that's a big deal. But baptism is also an act of obedience. Like Duvall, he's going to come up right now, and he's going to stand before all you people, and he's going to be afraid looking at all you people. He is. And he's going to say, before you and before God, that King Jesus is my all. He's my Savior. And he's my Lord. So this is our tangible, visual expression of baptism. 